Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with Ukraine calling up reservists as Russia moves troops and tanks into the enclave occupied by their proxies in the Donbass, following Putin's orders and his declaration of Russian sovereignty over Ukraine's two eastern provinces, Luhansk and Donetsk. Joining us to discuss whether claiming the rest of Ukrainian territory beyond the line of control means that a shooting war will necessarily break out is Stephen Pfeiffer, a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and a fellow at the Center for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford University. He served as a Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in the Bureau of European and Eurasian Affairs, U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine, and Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director for Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia on the National Security Council. In addition to Kiev, he had postings in London, Moscow, Geneva, and Warsaw, and is the author of a number of books, including The Eagle and the Trident, U.S.-Ukraine Relations in Turbulent Times, and Averting Crisis in Ukraine. Then we'll examine whether Putin will slice off what he can in the East without a full-scale war against Ukraine, attacking it from three sides, and speak with Daniel Treisman, a professor of political science at the University of California, Los Angeles, and a fellow at the Center for Advanced Research in the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University. A leading specialist on the politics and economics of post-communist Russia, he's the author of a number of books on Russia, including The New Autocracy, Information Politics and Policy in Putin's Russia, and Spin Dictators, The Changing Face of Tyranny in the 21st Century. And we will discuss his article at CNN, Putin Isn't Likely to Stop Here. Then finally, we'll look into reports that Rudy Giuliani is negotiating with the January 6th committee to give testimony implicating others in the attempt to derail the certification of Biden's victory short of revealing his conversations with Trump, which he claims are covered by attorney-client privilege, even though Giuliani has been disbarred. Joining us is Jack Blum, a Washington lawyer who is an expert on white-collar financial crime and international tax evasion. He spent 14 years as a staff attorney with the Senate Antitrust Subcommittee and the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and has been a consultant to the United Nations Center on Transnational Corporations, the United Nations Office of Drug Control and Crime Prevention, and served as the chair of the Experts Group on International Asset Recovery. And before we go to our first guest, since we are now fully independent, your support for this program is vital to keep us online and on a growing number of radio stations across the country. And while we operate on a low budget, we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org to help ensure that background briefing is sustainable into the future so that we can continue to provide a daily news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests, both at home and abroad. And for those listeners who have issues with PayPal, we now have made it easier to donate simply by credit card. So if you are in a position to give support or have been meaning to but have been unable, please go to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Ambassador Stephen Pfeiffer, who's a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and a fellow at the Center for Security for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford University. 
He serves as a Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in the Bureau of European and Eurasian Affairs, U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine and Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director for Russia, Ukraine and Eurasia on the National Security Council. In addition to Kiev, he had postings in London, Moscow, Geneva and Warsaw, as well as on the National Security Council, and is the author of a number of books, including The Eagle and the Trident, U.S.-Ukraine Relations in Turbulent Times and Averting Crisis in Ukraine. Welcome to Background Briefing, Stephen Piper. Thank you for having me. So, uh, obviously, President Putin hasn't read your book, Averting Crisis in Ukraine. It, <laughs> if anything, he wants a crisis. He's, he's creating a crisis, is he not? Yes, I think if you look back over the last three months as this crisis has built, uh, there has been no real indication of Russian or serious Russian interest in diplomacy and at every venture uh, where there was an opportunity for the Kremlin to de-escalate the crisis, uh, it did not take that opportunity, and it said it looked for opportunities to uh, escalate the crisis, as it did on Monday with the decision to recognize the two so-called People's Republics in Donbass, and then openly send the Russian army into those areas, which is Ukrainian territory. So the head of NATO, uh, Stoltenberg, uh, had just tweeted out, There is much at stake in today's crisis. The risk of conflict is real. Russia is using force and ultimatums not only to redraw borders in Europe, but to try to rewrite the entire global security architecture. Would you agree with that? Um, I think it's pretty clear that Mr. Putin is unhappy with the way Europe's security architecture has evolved over the last three decades. That is particularly the enlargement of NATO and the enlargement of the European Union. However, I would just note that Russian actions have driven a lot of that. Uh, Take the case of Ukraine. Nothing has done more than Russian policy over the past eight years to push Ukraine away from Russia and towards the West. You know, 10 years ago in Ukraine, maybe 20 percent of the population polled would have supported joining NATO. Today, that number is over 60 percent. That's all on Mr. Putin's policy. Well, Putin offers gangster government, like Lukashenko, his buddy in uh, Belarus, which now Russian military is ostensibly occupying, which is making the Baltic states nervous. I mean, when you look at some of the demonstrations that are taking place across Western Europe in front of Russian embassies, I think there's going to be a massive backlash if this thing turns bloody I think Putin's made a major miscalculation because he simply doesn't understand or respect the idea that people want to live in freedom and they want to have democracy and the rule of law. They don't want to be run. They don't want to have their lives dictated by gangsters and kleptocrats. No, I I think you are right. And in fact, uh, you're already seeing that backlash. Uh, My guess is that in the Kremlin, they are surprised by the unity between the United States and Europe in opposing what Russia is trying to do in Ukraine. Uh, They are surprised that the sanctions are being rolled out already. They were particularly surprised that Germany yesterday suspended the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Uh, They had thought that that was always going to be isolated as a purely commercial project. Uh, So I think they have been surprised. They've also been surprised by the reaction of NATO is you've had not just the United States, but Britain, France, the Netherlands, Germany, and others have been sending forces to the eastern flank to bolster those countries' defenses, understandably in the Baltics, 
Uh, and in Poland, those countries are nervous given what Russia is doing to Ukraine. And NATO is now moving, or NATO members are now moving, to basically assure them that there will be support for their defense and also to signal Moscow that it would be a grave miscalculation to have ambitions that go beyond Ukraine into NATO territory. So do you think then that Putin could hold off on a bigger war that President Biden has suggested he wants to take the capital of Ukraine, Kiev? He's already invaded up until the line of control. He hasn't taken all of the two provinces that he's now declared as independent states. So he's actually declaring sovereignty over areas which would require military force to take all of those provinces. Whether he'll cross the line of control, I don't know. I guess nobody knows. But is it possible that he will just basically push in there, maybe not even take the whole area? Because I imagine once if he goes for the whole of Luhansk and Donetsk, that's a shooting war, isn't it? Yeah, no, I, I very much I hope I am wrong. Uh, but you know, the Russians already occupy and they've annexed uh, uh, Crimea. Uh, they already occupy about 35% of the Donbass. Uh, and uh, they've now recognized uh, the two so-called people's republics as independent states. Um, a, a, nobody, very few other countries in the world will follow them in that recognition. But what I worry about is when you look at the speech that Mr. Putin gave on Monday, it was full of grievance against Ukraine. It was full of grievance against the West, but it was not the kind of speech that he needed to give if he was explaining to the Russian public that he was going to recognize these two small statelets. It was the speech he was going had to give if he was trying to mobilize Russian public opinion for a broader Russian military assault on Ukraine. That should be worrisome. The second point is that when Mr. Putin recognized the two statelets, the so-called People's Republics of Donetsk and Luhansk, he recognized them in the territory of the entire oblast, the entire provinces of Donetsk and Luhansk. The People's Republics only occupy about 35% of that territory. So the question then arises, how does he plan to uh, establish their control over the entire province? Now, he did say something about where there could be discussions between the now <clears throat> the authorities in the two statelets and Ukraine, but Ukraine's not going to give up that territory. And I think it's fairly easy to see where this is going. And I think there's a strong likelihood of a Russian military assault into those areas. And the Russians also have the potential, given their buildup, for a military assault coming out of Belarus that could be aimed at Kyiv. So the Ukrainians are calling up their reservists. Anybody, I think, from the age of 18 to 60. So it's a, a lot of people, but not necessarily well-trained people. And they're also calling upon... Ukrainians in Russia to come home. What's the likelihood of that happening? Uh, well, I'm not sure how many Ukrainians in Russia will choose to come home. Uh, they, some may conclude that they're actually safer remaining in Russia. But as for the military call-up, uh, remember uh, that above and beyond the active duty military, which is about 250,000 troops now, that more than twice the size of the military uh, in, in 2014, that there are 400,000 Ukrainians who have are veterans. They've served in the army over the last eight years, and many of those have served along the line of contact, and they faced off against Russian and Russian proxy forces. So the number of reservists, but also those veterans, if they mobilize in the territorial defense, the Ukrainians will have a lot of people 
who are familiar with military uh, tactics, who understand weapons, and have actually served under fire. And this is a potential miscalculation I think the Russians make, or may make. To be sure, the Russian military can overmatch the Ukrainian military in important ways, such as air power and sea power. Uh, but I visited Kyiv three weeks ago. Ukrainians are determined to resist. The Ukrainian military will fight. And the Ukrainians are also making preparations for a guerrilla war, uh, should uh, that become necessary, should the Russians try to occupy large segments of Ukrainian territory. This could be very messy for the Russians. And again, I'm speaking with Ambassador Stephen Pfeiffer, a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and a fellow at the Center for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford University. He served as a Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in the Bureau of European and Eurasian Affairs, U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine and Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director for Russia, Ukraine and Eurasia on the National Security Council. In addition to Kiev, he had postings in London, Moscow and Geneva and Warsaw, as well as on the National Security Council, and is the author of a number of books, including The Eagle and the Trident, U.S.-Ukraine Relations in Turbulent Times and Averting Crisis in Ukraine. So, Ambassador Pfeiffer, what do you make of the Putin's extraordinary... Well, there were two amazing scenes uh, on Monday. First one in this National Security Council meeting in this huge Kremlin hall where Putin is up on a dais on a kind of throne and, and all of these supplicants who are even members of his National Security Council are in a semicircle way across the room from him and he treats them like sort of errand schoolboys and they come up one by one and basically mouth this kind of sycophantic adherence to his policy. Sometimes they get it wrong. And he scolds them, you know, no, I'm not, we're not talking about annexing, we're talking about independence and speak up, speak up. I mean, it was an amazing scene. And a lot of analysts have always suggested that people like Patrushev and the head of the SVR and Shoigu, the defense minister, are these hawks that keep whispering in Putin's ear. We recall that, for example, Angela Merkel used to call him up regularly on the phone just to make sure that Putin was getting objective advice about what's happening in the real world. But what I took away from that National Security Council, staged National Security Council meeting, was that Putin's just as hawkish as these other guys, and that maybe he's like the Tsar, you know, he's just literally isolated. And the longevity and the power that he has is just sort of, you know, it's beyond going to his head. He's just become somebody else. I mean, maybe he's always been this way, but now I think he's unhinged. What's your take? Well, sir, I, I certainly agree that uh, what we saw in the Russian Security Council on Monday was a very bizarre staging. And it, it was staged. It was later admitted by the Kremlin that the uh, broadcast was not live, that it had been recorded sometime before. Uh, and it just contrasted, I mean, actually posted on Twitter a picture of that meeting and a picture of the uh, Sunday meeting that President Biden had with his National Security Council staff in the White House Situation Room, where they're all engaged in a conversation around the same table and such. So the, the staging was truly bizarre. Um, and I do worry about Mr. Putin that he has become increasingly isolated, particularly during the last two years with the COVID pandemic. Uh, his contacts, I think, have been sharply narrowed. Uh, when they take place, they are uh, uh, at some distance. We saw a week and a half ago when the French president was there, they met across the table 30 feet apart. Um, 
But I do worry that the information that is getting to Mr. Putin is coming from increasingly narrow channels, probably the security services, that he may not have a full understanding of things that are going on in Ukraine in terms of opposition to Russia, and that he may not have a full understanding of the depth of the Western reaction. And I worry about that because uh, bad information leads to miscalculation and mistakes. And to the extent he's operating in an echo chamber, I also fear that he sketched out his narrative. And his narrative, as we saw in his long speech on Monday, was one of grievance against the West, grievance against Ukraine. He's very good at listing grievances, uh, many of which have no basis in reality. Uh, but I worry that he is repeating this narrative so much that he's begun to believe substantial parts of it. So, for example, when he talks about the Orange Revolution in Ukraine or the Maidan Revolution in Ukraine, he doesn't see them as motivated by hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians rising up in protest, either against a stolen election or against authoritarian leadership. But it's all orchestrated by the CIA and MI6 and German intelligence. Uh, and again, I worry to the extent that he has bought into his own little universe as to what's going on. He's going to make miscalculations that will be bad for the rest of the world, bad for Ukraine, but are also ultimately going to be bad for Russia. But so far, what he's done in terms of these foreign policy adventures, Syria, I recall when the Russians first moved into Syria, President Obama more or less said, welcome to the quagmire. And it hasn't been a quagmire. I mean, you could make the case that the, that the Russians have gotten what they wanted. And likewise, in 2014, the taking of Crimea without one casualty, that you could argue was a success. And having the ability to destabilize Ukraine ever since then through the uh, Donbass occupation with these proxies, you could argue that that's been successful. So is it possible that he basically thinks he's on a on a roll here and that he can get away with occupying the country, you know, that he's, in other words, he's biting off more than he can chew. Yeah. Well, just a couple of comments first. I mean, Crimea, bear in mind that that was the one part of Ukraine where ethnic Russians constituted a majority. They were about 60% of the population. But also remember that the Ukrainians at the time in 2014 had the 10 or 12,000 troops on the peninsula but the Ukrainians made the decision not to oppose for a variety of reasons. Uh, Donbass, uh, you know, I, the Russians, I believe, did not want to annex Donbass. They saw it as leverage to put pressure on the government in Kyiv. And to some extent now, having recognized these two statelets, which are both in very difficult economic straits, you know, Russia now, I think, is going to have to take on some obligation to support them economically. But Regardless of how the West looked at what happened in 2014, I think there now is a growing realization uh, in the United States, in Europe, that Mr. Putin has broader ambitions, that uh, this is a threat that needs to be responded to in a more serious way. And again, I believe you're seeing that reflected in decisions by NATO countries to bolster NATO's presence on its eastern flank. Uh, by the United States and Europe to begin imposing sanctions, and by the broader flow of arms that you've seen flowing into Ukraine over the last month and a half to better enable the Ukrainians to defend themselves. So uh, to the extent Putin sees himself on a roll, I think the outside world is beginning to recognize what it has to deal with here, and you are going to see a sharper and a firmer response. 
Now, the big question still remains is, does Mr. Putin decide to launch an unprovoked war against Ukraine now that goes beyond? I mean, he's already seized Crimea. He's already inserted his troops into the occupied part of Donbass openly now. But does he now order a further military assault, either to take all of Donbass or to perhaps take Kyiv? And people need to bear in mind, you know, there has been no Ukrainian provocation to this. There is no Ukrainian threat to Russian security. This is all because of the decision of one man, Vladimir Putin. And the West should be doing everything it can now to signal him that if he does make that mistake, and I believe it's a mistake, that there will be a strong Western response and there will be painful consequences. And I say it's a mistake because a Russian military assault into Ukraine will be a tragedy for Ukraine. And there's no doubt about that. But I believe it's also going to be a tragedy for many Russian families who find that their sons, their husbands, and their brothers are not coming back, because I do believe that the Ukrainians will fight and they will fight back fiercely. So just in closing then, Ambassador Piper, when you talk about unity amongst NATO, there's not unity, unfortunately, in Washington amongst the Republicans. Some of the more traditional Republicans are sticking with Biden, even though Mitch McConnell is critical, saying he invited it all because of the weakness shown uh, with the um, fall of uh, Kabul, etc. But there are others that are much more strident. And the most strident of all, of course, is former President Trump, who's actually praising, he's cheering on Putin, saying the guy's a genius. What he's done is a genius move, and we should be doing that on the southern border. So that I find extraordinary. And then you've got Hawley and these other senators, and you've got Tucker Carlson, on Fox News, literally as a parroting Russian propaganda every night. So are we going to have contention on this if it gets worse? I would have thought that people like Tucker Carlson, I mean, I don't know what you can do about Trump, but at least Tucker Carlson, you'd think that they'd be ashamed once Ukrainians start getting killed. But nevertheless, you know, who knows what's going to happen? But I'd never seen anything like this. You've been in Washington a while too. Didn't they always say the partisanship ends at the shores? Uh, no, I think that's true. And actually, I still think that when you consider the traditional Republican Party, to the extent that there still are traditional Republicans, there is fairly broad consensus in support of Ukraine. That's Ukraine has really been, for most of the past 30 years, a bipartisan issue between Democrats and Republicans. Uh, I think you now have some concern about the fringe elements. Uh, I, I, I saw the former president's comments yesterday and all I could think was, thank God that he's no longer in the White House. Uh, I mean, President Putin, I think, displayed uh, a, 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 an ability to play uh, President Trump uh, like a fiddle. And, and I think it would have been a disaster for Ukraine, a disaster for Europe, and a disaster for American policy interests. As for Mr. Carlson, uh, you know, all I can think of is he's saving money. He's uh, cut back his writing staff and is simply taking talking points from RT, the Russian propaganda organization, or the Russian propaganda network. But I do think maybe this is an area, and President Biden has begun to do this with a series of talks about Ukraine, but I think he probably can lay out the case and should be laying out the case why this does matter uh, to the United States and to American interests. Uh, and he's begun to do that, but my guess is he'll have to do a bit more of that uh, to maintain strong and broad support in America for Ukraine. Uh, we should, again, bear in mind, uh, and I, I, I'm not happy with what this means for U.S.-Russia relations. I spent probably half of my career in the Foreign Service trying to work on improving relations between Washington and Moscow. So I say this with no happiness, but, but you know, Russia is really embarking now on a, a hostile course towards Ukraine. 
Ukraine is a victim in this. And we should remember that back in the 1990s, Ukraine had the world's third largest nuclear arsenal. And those weapons, 1900 strategic warheads that could be targeted at the United States, and they gave them up in part because the Russians said, we, Russia, will respect your sovereignty, your territorial integrity, and your independence, and that we will not use force against you. Russia shredded those commitments. And I think the United States should stand with Ukraine uh, because the Ukrainians did something that was usually important to us uh, and now is the victim of an attack that is going to be unprovoked aggression to my mind if it happens. Again, I, I still hope it won't, but I think all the signs are that it will and that there is an American security interest in resisting this kind of attack if we want to live in a world that is not simply one where large countries assert rights to invade smaller neighbors. And just in closing, of course, on Monday, Putin said that the Ukrainians were developing a nuclear weapon, which is you know, akin to his claims of genocide in the Donbass. So I, I thank you for joining us. Yeah, if I could just that, that, that was a couple of Ukrainians have said maybe what the Ukrainians, I think, are saying now is they're expressing regret that back in the 1990s, they gave up nuclear weapons. I helped negotiate with Ukraine and Russia the removal and the elimination of nuclear weapons from Ukraine. And I can understand their regret now that if they had nuclear weapons, they think that this conflict might not be happening. But again, Mr. Putin seizes on that to make this case that the Ukrainians are embarked on getting nuclear weapons again. And that's totally false. But again, it's part of this narrative of grievance that you're going to be hearing from Mr. Putin as he tries to explain a policy which is really one of naked aggression against Ukraine. Well, Ambassador Stephen Piper, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Stephen Piper, a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and a fellow at the Center for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford University. He served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in the Bureau of European and Eurasian Affairs, U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine and Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director for Russia, Ukraine and Eurasia on the National Security Council. And in addition to Kiev, he had postings in London, Moscow, Geneva and Warsaw and is the author of a number of books, including The Eagle and the Trident, U.S.-Ukraine Relations in Turbulent Times, and Averting Crisis in Ukraine. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining whether Putin will slice off what he can in the East without a full-scale war against Ukraine. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Daniel Treisman, is a professor of political science at the University of California, Los Angeles, and a fellow at the Center for Advanced Research in the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University, a leading specialist on the politics and economics of post-communist Russia. He's the author of a number of books on Russia, including The New Autocracy, Information, Politics, and Policy in Putin's Russia, and Spin Dictators, The Changing Face of Tyranny in the 21st Century. And he has an article at CNN, Putin Isn't Likely to Stop Here. Welcome to Background Briefing, Daniel Treisman. Thanks. Good to be here. So how could Putin sort of not stop? I mean, the, the guy that's the sort of proxy leader for the Russian uh, 
pro-Russian separatists. He was on Russian TV tonight basically saying that when he was asked about are they going to move beyond the line of control because Putin has claimed essentially sovereignty over the entire provinces of Luhansk and Donetsk. So the the, the pro-Russian separatist leader said, oh, well, the, Iranian, the Ukrainians are going to have to just move out of their trenches and leave their weapons behind or something to that effect. So you've got Russia's representative of the United Nations talking in incredibly undiplomatic language, basically saying we're not going to, when we go in, it won't be soft. I just get the feeling that they're itching to go, but could they basically stop where they are at the line of control? And what would Putin gain in terms of his declaration of independence for these two uh, states when the rest of their territory still belongs to Ukraine? Yes, uh, that's right. We don't really know what Putin plans. And uh, the problem from the start has been that uh, everything that is going to happen from the Russian side uh, is going to be decided on by Putin and Putin alone. So we ha- apparently the US has very good intelligence about what orders have been given, but they don't have any intelligence on what's in Putin's head. Now, one thing he could do is, as you suggested, go up to the line of contact uh, with Russian troops and stop there. Uh, that would be quite inconsistent with that rambling and rather vituperative talk that he gave, the speech he gave uh, on TV a couple of days ago, uh, which made clear that his grievances, uh, this is no no uh, great surprise, that his grievances have to do with uh, not just uh, Donetsk and Lugansk, but the whole of Ukraine and also with NATO. His ultimate objective, uh, as he's made clear, is to roll back NATO to basically the position as of 1997, or at least uh, to have weapons uh, moved back to deployments as of 1997. So stopping at the line of contact wouldn't uh, get him very far uh, towards those objectives. On the other hand, uh, he tends to move piece by piece. He tends to probe, uh, to go forward, to see what the reaction is, and then make a decision about what to do next. Uh, so we might expect uh, him to stop. But on the other hand, uh, it's it's quite plausible that uh, he would order uh, his troops to go to the administrative boundaries of the Donetsk and Lugansk regions, that is to take over the whole regions of uh, Donetsk and Lugansk rather than just uh, the uh, smaller area that's currently uh, controlled by the separatists or the pro, pro-Russian pro proxy fighters. Um, or uh, he might order them to go even further, uh, potentially uh, even to take Kiev. Uh, we just don't know. And that uncertainty is something that he's deliberately created in order to pressure uh, Zelensky, to pressure the Ukrainians, and also to pressure the West. Um, so sadly, I can't give you any uh, advance warning of what he's going to do, but that's that's where we are. Well, though, if he were to go further than the line of control, that would be a shooting war with Ukraine. And if you're going to get into a shooting war with Ukraine, you'd think that he'd want to go the whole hog, right? Attack Kiev and take Odessa with the Navy amphibious ships, etc., which are off the in the Black Sea. So isn't that sort of logical, Daniel? Well, it depends what his objectives are. If his objectives are uh, to, 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 at this point, to control 
uh, Donetsk and Lugansk, the whole regions, uh, then he doesn't need to do that. If he goes further, uh, the risks increase dramatically. Uh, it turns into, as you say, a, a bloody war. Uh, and he doesn't have enough troops to securely hold the whole of Ukraine. Uh, so it gets much more complicated, much more risky. Uh, the reaction from the West might also be stronger. Um, it could be that that's a risk that he's decided to take, um, but it could also be that he's uh, aiming to to move the boundary forward uh, to be able to say that he's uh, expanded the borders of of Russia, not just in Crimea, but in other places as well. He's made his mark on history. Um, but uh, but to stop there uh, in the hope or expectation that uh, after a few years of, uh, of uh, criticism and uh, isolation, uh, the West would come around and negotiate with him again. And again, I'm speaking with Daniel Treisman, who's a professor of political science at the University of California, Los Angeles, and a fellow at the Center for Advanced Research in the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University, a leading specialist on the politics and economics of post-communist Russia. He's the author of a number of books on Russia, including The New Autocracy, Information Politics and Policy in Putin's Russia, and Spin Dictators, The Changing Face of Tyranny in the 21st Century. And he has an article at CNN, Putin isn't likely to stop here. So if he were to go, I mean, he's already up there because they moved their troops and tanks in, and they've already had always had intelligence and special forces people in that area controlled by these pro-Russian proxies. Right. So if, if he just stays there, then I suppose the strategy would be to sort of divide the Europeans. In other words... They'll be so relieved it's not a full-scale war, then maybe some of the sanctions would come off. Is it, do you think that's a possible strategy? Right. I, I think it is a possible strategy. I don't think it's the most likely, but it is possible. So let's think about what he would have uh, obtained if the Russian troops do stop uh, just within the borders of what's now the self-proclaimed Donetsk People's Republic and the Lugansk People's Republic. Okay, so first of all, uh, he would have... He would be able to say to the Russian people that he's defended these uh, these uh, ethnic Russians who are being attacked. Uh, he's talked about genocide. Uh, of course, all of this is 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 entirely made up. There haven't been uh, any attacks from the Ukrainian side uh, on these republics in in recent months. Not even response to the heavy shelling uh, going over to the Ukrainian side. Um, but he can say that he can say he can. Uh, Put on the show as this great, great savior of Russians abroad. Uh, he, he's also, meanwhile, uh, established a uh, very strong military position in Belarus. Uh, if this were happening by itself, then Europe would have uh, would have responded very strongly to the fact that, in effect, he's taken over control of Belarus uh, at the invitation of uh, Belarus's dictator uh, Alexander Lukashenko. Uh, but there are about 30,000 30, uh, Russian troops there, and Lukashenko has said that they will be staying for the indefinite future. So one of his aims may well have been to uh, to deepen uh, military uh, involvement in Belarus and consolidate uh, the uh, integration of Belarus into this uh, joint state. 
Um, plus, if he stops at this point, uh, as as you were suggesting, this will likely cause some tension within the West uh, with the more soft line uh, European leaders uh, reluctant to impose serious sanctions, uh, while uh, more hawkish uh, parts of the NATO alliance uh, fear that not to impose sanctions will just encourage him to go further. So he'll have created, he'll have exploited uh, underlying differences of opinion or even divisions in the Western alliance. And obviously the, the Baltic states which border Belarus are very concerned now. I imagine Poland is as well. Right. And uh, I, I think one thing that's definitely going to happen and it's, is happening already is that NATO uh, will uh, increase deployments uh, and, uh, and do more to protect uh, the very exposed Baltic states in Poland. I think that the U.S. has increased uh, U.S. troops in, in Poland from 4,000 to 9,000. I think we'll see more of that and, and probably uh, more defensive weapons uh, supplied to these uh, now frontline states. So do you think that, I mean, after watching that unbelievable National Security Council meeting where Putin is like up on a throne like the Tsar, and all of these other, his inner circle, his National Security Council members are in his semicircle way across this huge room in the Kremlin. And he seems, you know, maybe he's sort of become almost like the Tsar with so much power. And, you know, there was always a theory that these these hardliners like Nikolai Petrushev and others were whispering in his ear all kinds of dark ideas. But he seems to be just as hawkish as, as they ever were. And seems in many ways to be really on a on a roll here. I mean, you met with him in 2015 after he took Crimea and, and you asked him about the planning for taking Crimea and, and what did he say to you? <laughs> they well, were better yeah. than expected? First of all, he, he was clearly quite proud uh, and happy to talk about it. And he said, uh, I, I asked him if he'd made the decision spontaneously or if it had been planned for a long time. He said, no, spontaneously. Uh, we saw what was happening in Kiev. This was the uh, Maidan and the, the really the, the breakdown, what he calls a coup. Uh, and uh, he said, he, we decided we'd do this, we'd do that. And I said, well, uh, did you consult your aides? And he said, no, I told them we'll do this and we'll do that. Um, and uh, he smiled and he said, uh, and uh, it, it, actually, I was surprised at how well it went. Um, of course, he went on to explain that this wasn't a military occupation. Of course, it was just making it possible for the Crimean people to express their free uh, choice about their future uh, in a referendum. But so, yes, uh, I think, I, I mean, he, he seems to have uh, his thinking, let's say, has developed in these last two years as he's been isolated, self-isolated uh, because of COVID, uh, talking to fewer people in person. And uh, he, in, in that speech, I think what we saw was uh, uh, the climax of a long process in which he's been becoming ever less a sort of conservative uh, post-Soviet statist and more of a uh, extreme nationalist, even imperialist. So he's, he seems to uh, look back uh, with nostalgia, not to the Soviet period, uh, in fact, in that speech, he was he was very harsh about Lenin and the Bolsheviks and blamed them for creating uh, the uh, 
the kind of artificial states as he sees them now, or the artificial state of Ukraine in any case. Uh, and what he seems to be viewing as the golden days of, of Russia was the imperial period up until 1914. Uh, now, uh, that's a very strange perspective, obviously, for somebody in 2022. Uh, and it's not a reassuring one because uh, the territories of the Russian Empire in 1914 uh, were larger than the territories of the Soviet Union. or uh, And there were many countries that that implicitly threatens if that is how he's thinking. But yeah, in the in the past, I've found it a bit facile to compare him to a Tsar. It's like any any authoritarian leader in Russia has to be a Tsar. But uh, now it's hard to deny that he feels a real fascination with uh, imperial era Russia. And he's looking at borders and uh, peoples really with this attitude uh, that uh, the true Russia, the, the Russia that, the, that uh, exists underneath perhaps and that needs to be recognized is the Russia of uh, more than 100 years ago. So in the last minute then, Daniel, given the conversation that you had with him and with Putin in 2015 and his triumphant attitude, is he on a roll? Because things worked out well for him in Syria from his point of view. And they worked, certainly worked out well for him in Crimea and in the Donbass. Uh, they've been able to destabilize Ukraine on the cheap for the last eight years. So do you think he's on a roll, that he thinks he can get away with it? It's very hard to tell, you know, because on the one hand, uh, yes, he looks like he's extremely confident. He's pushing further and further. But at the same time, he could be doing those things because he feels insecure rather than feeling uh, feeling triumphant. Uh, things have gone well so far, but I, I believe that he does recognize that the trend uh, is quite negative in domestic politics. His popularity has gone down. Uh, if you look at opinion polls on trust, for instance, it's 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 uh, really fallen quite low. Uh, and he's been shifting to a much more repressive approach domestically, which I think is in recognition of the fact uh, that he can't rely on this huge popularity and genuine popularity that he had for so many years. So uh, it's it's hard to tell how those different perceptions combine. Uh, I wouldn't say that it's uh, a purely triumphant uh, feeling, a feeling of overconfidence, but he may be making mistakes uh, because he's not quite sure how to how, how to put together the sense of of problems successfully managed at home and serious challenges abroad. I mean, he, he, he probably feels that this threat from NATO is real and is likely to grow over time. Ukraine has become much more uh, militarily defensible. Uh, the Ukrainian army has, has, uh, has re really been rebuilt. So it's, it's, you know, it's very difficult to tell uh, how uh, optimism and and fear uh, combine in his mind at this point. Well, Daniel Treisman, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. 
And again, I've been speaking with Daniel Treisman, who's a professor of political science at the University of California, Los Angeles, and a fellow at the Center of Advanced Research in the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University, a leading specialist on the politics and economics of post-communist Russia. He's the author of a number of books on Russia, including The New Autocracy, Information, Politics, and Policy in Putin's Russia, and Spin Dictators, The Changing Face of Tyranny in the 21st Century. And he has an article at CNN, Putin Isn't Likely to Stop Here. We're going to take a brief station break and we're back looking into reports that Rudy Giuliani is negotiating with the January 6th committee to give testimony implicating others in the attempt to derail the certification of Biden's victory. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Jack Blum, a Washington lawyer who is an expert on white-collar financial crime and international tax evasion. He spent 14 years as a staff attorney with the Senate Antitrust Subcommittee and the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and has been a consultant to the United Nations Center on Transnational Corporations, the United Nations Office of Drug Control and Crime Prevention, and has served as the chair of the Experts Group on International Asset Recovery. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jack Blum. Good talking to you. Well, thanks for joining us, Jack, and uh, you've been involved in a lot of uh, congressional inquiries. So what do you make of the House Select Committee uh, looking into the January 6th insurrection? They seem to be having some success. Now we're hearing that Rudy Giuliani is poised to cooperate with the committee and also that Ivanka Trump is in talks with the committee for a voluntary interview. So... What's your sense of the, of the work they're doing? Because they've talked to, what, over 500 well, witnesses? They have an awful lot of information, and uh, they know a tremendous amount of what's go- about what's gone on. Uh, but what, what the problem is for Rudy Giuliani is he's dancing through a minefield. He uh, has a number of investigations that, he is the target of or that are open that involve him. And uh, he, the last thing he needs is another criminal case, this one for criminal contempt for not helping the committee. And uh, that, that's something that would entire, be entirely within the range of possibility. From the committee side, the committee doesn't want to quite go there because of the time constraints. They want to begin hearings, and they want it to begin relatively quickly. And they want uh, him to be uh, either a witness or they want enough of what he said to be usable in the context of the hearing so that they can uh, give a rather full presentation. So there's a dance going on here, and the dance is how little can I give you in exchange for uh, saying that I cooperated and there's no criminal contempt. And that's what he's uh, in the process of doing. That's what this negotiation is. But is he basically laying down a marker that I won't talk 
about any of my discussions with Trump because of attorney-client privilege, but maybe I will talk about what went on with members of Congress and others getting involved in this attempt uh, on January the 6th to decertify Biden's victory, uh, because there's an awful lot of evidence coming out now about the phony slates of electors that Giuliani seems to have been the one that's organized that. There, aren't there some very specific criminal statutes that laws were broken both at the federal and state level? Uh, of course, there's vulnerability there. Uh, if he admits to and talks about what he's done in that regard, and especially if he talks about what he did with Trump. But as I understand what's going on in the negotiations, uh, he has carved out uh, an area that he simply won't talk about. And this is stuff he considers to be lawyer-client privilege uh, or uh, other material covered by some confidentiality understanding between him and Trump. Uh, I personally don't think that that would fly in a court of law because there's an exception to lawyer-client privilege, uh, the crime-fraud exception. So if the lawyer works with a client to violate criminal law, uh, it, there's no lawyer-client privilege in the world. Well, some of these lawyers, like Giuliani and Sidney Powell, ostensibly they're lawyers, but they no don't... No longer. Giuliani, remember, has been disbarred. And what about Sidney Powell? Is, uh... I don't know about her, but uh, she was in the same kind of proceeding. So yeah. maybe it's happened, maybe it's something that will happen. I, I simply don't know. But so he's been disbarred. If... So if you've been disbarred, can you claim lawyer-client privilege? Yes, you can for any legitimate advice. If a client comes to a lawyer and says, uh, I'd like you to advise me about the following situation. Is it legal? Isn't it legal? How can I do this legally? Uh, the lawyer can say this was in the, in the scope of my providing legal advice to the client, and that should be protected. The exception is the crime-fraud exception, which is if the client comes in and says, how do we rob a bank, and you start laying out for him the best way to do it and not get caught, uh, there's no privilege. Uh, cannot be a privilege. If there's some kind of fraud scheme and uh, you're advising him on how to do the fraud scheme, uh, instead of being a lawyer, you're a co-conspirator. And uh, that's the, the difficult part of this. Now, Giuliani has some other problems uh, that are out there, including his dealings with all of these people in Ukraine, the question of his registering under foreign agents' registration, uh, the uh, question of uh, was he doing something improper and illegal in Ukraine itself to try to get uh, the government to go against uh, Biden. Uh, these are all issues that he's got to be dealing with, and it's got to be a very uncomfortable situation. And anybody who's advising him would say, the last thing we want you to do is appear in a context where you're under oath and you're talking about the things that have come up in these criminal investigations 
because all of that can and would be used against you. So don't talk about that. So he's he's obviously negotiating with the committee for a very limited scope of testimony. Uh, and here the, the issue at hand would be what went on that night when he was sitting in the hotel with the other people who were doing the plotting and planning and uh, what the connections and, and conversations with Trump were that night. And uh, how far he goes in talking about that is probably right at the heart of the negotiations. And again, I'm speaking with Jack Blum, Washington lawyer, who's, who is an expert on white-collar financial crime and international tax evasion. He spent 14 years as a staff attorney with the Senate Antitrust Subcommittee and the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and has been a consultant to the United Nations Center on Transnational Corporations, the United Nations Office of Drug Control and Crime Prevention, and has served as a chair of the Experts Group on International Asset Recovery. So I mentioned earlier there have been... the, the the House Select Committee investigating January the 6th insurrection have spoken to more than 500 witnesses and they've obtained more than 50,000 documents, including thousands from uh, Mark Meadows, the former White House Chief of Staff. I take it that they're also trying to get documents out of Giuliani. Yes. What, what kind of a documents would he have? I mean, do you think he actually believes the crazy stuff he says on television? About that's, that's a question that... Only Giuliani and uh, his maker can uh, probably answer. Uh, you would expect that uh, if we're dealing with a rational person, the answer is no. But uh, I think uh, given some of the things he's done and said in the period of the last year, it may very well be that he's, as we say in the trade, drinking his own bathwater. Uh, thinking that, uh, yes, this is all true, and yes, this was all plausible. And and remember, he's involved in a civil suit with the uh, people who own the election machines, the ballot, uh, the ballot counting machines. He said they were rigged, and he knew they were rigged, and they sued him. Uh, and uh, as far as I know, that lawsuit's proceeding. So that's just another one of the mountainous uh, uh, legal troubles he confronts. So uh, in other words, I, he could go bankrupt if he's not already bankrupt, because he was yeah. always hungry for money, wasn't he? Uh, and he, he's, he must have legal bills up the kazoo. He has, he has all these legal problems, and he also, as I understand it, has an ex-wife or two and, and substantial alimony payments. So he's a man who's got some problems, I, and, and some of these problems, I think, were of his own making. And uh, now he's trying to weave his way through this mess, as I said, dancing his way through the legal minefields of all of the pending investigations against him, the civil suit against him, and he doesn't want another criminal case. So what he's trying to do here is give the committee just enough so that he can say, well, look, I cooperated. And they can say, well, we got something here and it fits together with other pieces of the puzzle that we're, uh, we've assembled. Now, what, what the challenge will be for the select committee 
is how in a public setting they're going to be able to tell the story of what happened the night before and the week before uh, the rally and the, the January 6th events. Uh, how do you tell that story in a coherent fashion with uh, some of the main characters actually willing to appear and talk about it and then be confronted by some of the documents and other materials that are available? Uh because that's where the drama will be. That's where the good television will be. And uh, the committee, I think, would love to have him in front of them and have him tell his story, whatever it is, and then have all of this uh, documentation in front of them and be able to ask for the details of what occurred. Uh, and then he can either decide, whoops, I've gone too far here and uh, I better take the fifth, or he'll uh, answer but do some dancing around in the answer. Well, just in the last couple of minutes, Jack Blum, we've got obviously the House Select Committee are Congress people, and it's hard to keep them away from TV cameras, and a number have spoken regularly. They keep saying we can't talk about it because... It's under investigation, right. but they do offer up some leaks, and, and that includes the minority co-chair as well, Liz Cheney. Mm -hmm. So my understanding is that there is a parallel investigation going on in the Justice Department. In other words, the Justice Department is not just sitting around waiting right. for the select committee to release its report, and then they'll act on it. My understanding is that they are investigating, and do you think, given the criticism of Attorney General Garland, do you think he really will go after Trump? That's a very difficult question, and, and there are many, many considerations. The uh, per, uh, principal issue that he has to face is the rule internal to the Department of Justice, uh, and and it really is their, their house rule. Uh, but first, before you bring an indictment or bring a criminal case, you have to be convinced, and, and this is up and down the ladder in the department, that you have evidence which will, will prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. They want an ironclad case before they move forward. Now, uh, given the complexity of everything that went on, and given the the time a case like that would involve, and then on top of it, there's a second Justice Department rule, which uh, has been talked about quite a bit in the last couple of years, which is the, the issue of their rule about not interfering with an election. And remember, these hearings are going to be up against the midterm elections. So, you know, would justice move forward before those midterm elections? I'm very much inclined to doubt it. Uh, I think bringing a criminal case against a former president would be a very tricky business. And uh, it may go forward, but then again, uh, I'd say unless there really is what had been called over the years the smoking gun, I'm not sure what they'll do. Well, Jack Blum, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you.
And again, I've been speaking with Jack Blum, a Washington lawyer who's an expert on white-collar financial crime and international tax evasion. He spent 14 years as a staff attorney with the Senate Antitrust Subcommittee and the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and has been a consultant to the United Nations Center on Transnational Corporations, the United Nations Office of Drug Control and Crime Prevention, and served as the chair of an experts group on international asset recovery. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Oh